This episode is sponsored by The Hand-Built City, a cooperative of investors, craftsmen, and designers advancing urban innovation in the Rust Belt. Based out of Lake County, Indiana, in St. Louis, Missouri, they work on creating creative and profitable solutions for urban innovation, focusing principally on affordable housing development through the stabilization of distressed neighborhoods. They envision a regional effort to advance standards for design, community investment, and green building across the Midwest. They are backed by diverse sources of capital and diverse private equity partners and are themselves investors, craftsmen, technicians, designers, and problem solvers. Find out more about their work at handbuiltcity.org. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hey. And Jenna Ipcar. Hello. This is the third episode, and today we are talking about movies that got us into movies. So the ones that were kind of our gateway into that whole world we are connected to now and obsessed with and love dearly. So that's the topic. All right, so John, you were telling me you have a good story related to this. Yeah. Let's start off with that. Okay. I remember the movie that got me into movies, and I remember when it was. It was summer of 1993. I was five years old, and of course, like everybody within that mid-20s belt, it was Jurassic Park, which had just came out. I went to see Jurassic Park in theaters with my dad. I remember it very well. And then um, after the movie, he bought me this little, like, slim for kids making of book that was like 40 pages or whatever. And it had just blurbs about the movie and then pictures that were like frames from the movie. And I really wanted to know how they got the frames out of the movie and into the book. Just the process of like extracting them, I guess, from the movie. Because I was young, I didn't understand the concept of frames or whatever. So I asked my dad, I pointed to this picture of Jeff Goldblum and a dinosaur or whatever, and I asked my dad, how did they do that? And what I meant was, how did they get the movie into the book? But he, of course, took it as, how did they get the dinosaur and Jeff Goldblum into frame together? (laughs) So he grabbed a bunch of my dinosaur toys and his camera, and he took me out in the backyard And we took a bunch of pictures of the toys, like forced perspective, so they looked like they were my size with me, like from real low angles, so it looked like the daffodils or whatever were like trees and they were giant. And he showed me all these little just like camera tricks. And that's really what got me interested in film and the way that you can just make something out of nothing. And if he had understood the question I was asking right... I probably would not be interested in it, and I would be in publishing now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Jurassic Park was also like a major childhood memory of mine. I remember that's the first time that I I saw a movie, like I saw it three times in theaters, and I was so enamored, especially with Jeff Goldblum, actually. He was like my hero when I was like four. I think it's like the King Kong for this generation, where you have essentially a whole generation that it was so far beyond anything anybody had seen before it, that it put the question into a whole generation's mind. How did they do that? And can I do that? It also gave me some really memorable nightmares. (laughs) Really? Oh, yeah. Was it the Raptors or the T-Rex or 
the raptors and the 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 what's the spitter the dillo dilophosaurus there you go uh yeah i mean i don't know that i have one specific story like that i think that's very intriguing that you have that actually but i mean I, my dad's a cameraman my mom was a sound recordist so i grew up with uh probably a lot of their influence in that respect and um I remember, I mean, uh, the movies that really stand out to me that got me interested in movies are definitely Jurassic Park I was so in love with. And um, 2001, I remember seeing at a young age that totally... How young? Definitely like 10 or something. You know, like young enough that when I saw it, I was a little impatient for it, but it still intrigued me. And I also didn't know what the hell was happening. Yeah, that's a weird one for a young kid. That kind of like recalibrates your brain as far as like watching movies, you know? I have a really specific memory of watching 2001 and then the next day watching A Hard Day's Night, which was also a big influence because I love the Beatles. That's a really interesting combo. You have such a the extremes of what a movie can look like and make you feel just in like two days there. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's a crash course, man. That's the thing about this. I feel like the movies that really catch people when they're young are the ones that it's not like, I don't think it's really particularly the obvious ones that kids like so much as it's ones that feel like something kids or young teenagers didn't know you could do. Because another big one for me was Detour, which I saw when I was like 14, maybe 13. And it's just this like, and that's right when you're getting into the age where you start to try to make movies on your own. And it was such a, with all my favorite movies then and now, you know, they're all like big, like Aliens was, you watch it and you loved it, but you didn't think you could make it. You know, you didn't think you could make Casablanca or whatever. Right. But when you saw Detour, which is, you know, it's just a couple people in a room and it's really captivating. I watched that and I was like, oh, I didn't know you were like allowed to do this. And that was a big one for me because then it, that started to really push my boundaries of what an acceptable film could look like. And it started to become something that was achievable rather than just something you had to get handed down to you. Right. Something, uh, an ability that somebody said, hey, here's the tools to make a film. You know, it's like you have a room, you have people. Yeah. You you can finagle that. As far as like Jurassic Park, I don't know if I really remember seeing it in theaters. I, I remember like the first scene, like in the rain where they're like transporting some sort of the I guess raptor. the T-Rex or Raptor or something. Yeah, and it eats that dude. Yeah, I remember that. I don't remember really the rest of it in theaters. Like, I have memories in the movie, but I don't I don't remember the feeling of seeing what I was seeing, except for that part. Like, that was the part that really stuck with me. And, like, it's funny because I, I was taken to a lot of movies when I was that age. Like, when I was, I guess, like, five or six or something. Like, I remember my parents taking me to Under Siege 2, the one classic. on the train, still Steven classic. Seagal, and I remember way more of that movie than Jurassic Park in theaters. Even though I probably saw it at that same age, so it's funny. Like the movies that, like, it's almost like that that movie, that Steven Seagal movie, was more of a wow, you can do this in a movie experience for me because it was like seeing all these people like shooting each other and running around on a train and stuff like that. Like that was like this huge event where I realized that the spectacle of movies could be so like violent oriented, you know, that it wasn't always like about like the majesty of a, uh, a giant T-Rex or like brontosaurus is walking by with like swelling music. 
that it could be just like people shooting each other and the soundtrack's basically just lots and lots of gunfire and lots of kicking and punching. Do you remember the whole beginning scene or do you just remember images of it? Because I remember the one image where the guy's arm, where um, the, the, the tracker guy is trying to save the guy who's about to get eaten and you just see a close-up of his hand like slip through the other guy's arm. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And for some reason, I remember the geography of that that shot was not intuitive when you're a kid. So like in my brain, my brain filled it in that the raptor or whatever was like right behind his arm and just literally chewing away at him. And it was one of the one of those just like weird little kid nightmare images. Right. That when I still see that shot in the movie, I get um, uncomfortable with it. Just because mm. of the way my brain, which was too young for that shot, like found a way to process it. Well, that's kind of like, you don't really get too much glimpse of the monster in that beginning scene, right? If no. I remember correctly. I haven't seen it in a number of years. So we it's kind of like You that. really should fix that. Yeah. It is yeah. too good. It's kind of like that Jaws kind of thing of just the glimpses that Spielberg is so good at as far as... You know, whenever he limits himself to glimpses, you know, whatever story he's handling, like whether it's Saving Private Ryan, where you're just getting like these quick shots or something. He seems so good at handling the concept of getting these tiny glimpses that stick with you. I feel like with Jaws, it's overstated, though, because everybody remembers it where all you see is the fin until he hops up on the boat and eats um, Quint. But this the shot from Jaws that has always stuck with me and I think is the most intense shot of the movie is when um the guy on the sailboat gets eaten in the middle and you see the whole shark underwater like roll under him and grab him mm. and it's it's almost like a shot you'd see in uh in an early godzilla movie it's just you see the scale of this thing right and he could do it because it was under the water so he could hide how ropey the effects were but it was like a long do you remember that either of you remember that shot yeah you know, but it, you reminded me a little earlier of, of Saving Private Ryan. I remember seeing that in theaters when oh, I was man. eleven. Oh, yeah. I saw that on TV, so I didn't. Have man, that. that also that that definitely left an impression in me, but more in a like I knew I was too young to see this movie. I saw it with my mom, <laughs> so she's to blame. Which actually reminds me too of um, seeing Clockwork Orange when I was like fourteen or something, which also had a super profound effect on me in the sense that. Uh, just the whole, the whole aesthetic of that movie and, and the, the humor and, and just, I love, I think that's probably my favorite Kubrick movie, funny enough, even though there's other ones that I think are maybe, you know, grander films, but I just remember that movie. I, I remember asking my mother, Hey, like I have to rent a movie. I want to rent a movie. Should I rent this? And she said, yeah, yeah, it's a really great film. I remember it was rated X back in the day. It's probably not that bad now. <laughs> and I was like, mm like. Man, the end of that movie, I felt like I would had been scared into adulthood. You know? Yeah, the, how old were you? Like fourteen or something. The teenage like, chapter of like falling in love with movies is like a very different one. Like that's uh, that's a huge awakening. At least it was for me. Like before I was like thirteen or fourteen, like my connection to movies and what I appreciated about them was mostly comedy. Those were the movies that I really, really connected with, like What About Bob and like a lot of the Bill Murray stuff, like Groundhog Day and Ghostbusters and a lot of the SNL-oriented kind of, you know, Wayne's World. Like a lot of those movies, That's that was my concept of, movie, of a movie, which was, you know, if you're not going to do a huge thing like Dinosaurs or 
lightsabers or whatever, you're going to go on there and you're going to make people laugh and be like just amazing and brilliant and just kind of shine. And then like, I even think my concept of drama was tied into action and suspense and all that and gunplay and monsters and all that. Like I thought that's what drama was. I think until I was like maybe 11, 12. And I realized that there were like these movies of just people talking essentially, you know what I mean? And, uh, I'm trying to think what even it was. I think it was even like maybe might have been like Rushmore or something. That was kind of my gateway from like comedy into drama because it had that kind of perfect balance where like I knew that what was funny in it and I knew what was touching in it. And it was just it felt very tangible. It felt like this easy transition from like the humor that I associated with movies into you know, more character oriented kind of just dealing with life. People that were unhappy, I guess. Maybe that's really the thing is like movies about people that are unhappy, you know? I think that was like the switch that like like you're saying with Clockwork Orange that kinda of goes off and you're like, Wow, there's these movies too, you know? I'm I'm Harold and Maud was always a, a major favorite of mine from a young age. And I think that also really shaped uh, a lot of r- movies that I like and, and shape my taste completely. Um, old Hal Ashby there. Because you think about also, you know, talking about humor too, it reminds me, it's like you see these movies that, that connect with you either on some kind of emotional level. I think humor <laughs> humor is an emotion. Of course, um, yeah. And then from there you follow that thread into to sort of what develops. I mean, like like Pee-wee's Big Adventure was a, was a major, also a major influence on me as a kid. Yeah, me too. And then Definitely. you find, you know... Um, from there, you move on to to the other movies that um, he's done. Wait, Tim Burton? I thought you meant Paul Rubens. I was like, he was in Blow, I guess, and he was in. I thought you meant the Bicycle. <laughs> no, Tim Burton. Uh, Ed Wood was a huge one for me because Ed Wood. I never, I've never been. Even when I was a kid, I must have been a morose little bastard. I never liked comedies. Hmm. I still don't. If I had to like, I don't really like to think this way. But if I had to think favorite to least favorite genres. I, don't, I do not respond to comedies, but those sort of like, and I guess the nineties were a big heyday for them. Like maybe like the seventies were those sort of like movies that aren't really comedies, but are absurd. Mm-hmm. Those I always responded to. Well, Edward was one of those ones that like, I think it might even because be because it's sort of a film within a film type of thing. Cause it's about this movie that everybody makes fun of. And by the time I saw Edward, I had, I was like 14, 13 when I saw it, I had already seen plan nine and I had grown up a mystery science theater and this whole concept of like these, um, terrible, useless movies was sort of ingrained in how I was taught to process them. But then when you watch Ed Wood, and it shows you Plan 9 and it shows you that it's really junky and it's sloppy and everything. But it still treats that moment where um, where Edward is watching the premiere of Plan 9. It still treats that as a personal triumph. Mm. That was, I think that was a bit of a switch in my brain. And that, that really, it did the same thing that Detour and a few other movies did for me. Where it made me start to think about movies as communication vessels for individuals. And not necessarily something that has to be done right or wrong in how I'm viewing it, but that a lot of it is just different because it's coming from someone different than how I would have done it. Right. In in other words, it's not that there were mistakes made per se. It's just that 
these things are right for this person. They're almost a different dialect. Mm-hmm. Another big one along those lines was um, Night of the Living Dead, which um, I my dad loved when I was a kid and he had on VHS and I was never allowed to watch it. But I was pretty into Mystery Science Theater when I was a kid. So I liked the idea of pulling down this like goofy, campy movie and putting it on and making fun of it. Mm. And uh, I put on Night of the Living Dead and it scared the absolute shit out of me and like wrecked me. Yeah. And that one, like that blindsided me. I don't know any movie to this day that blindsided me the way that was. And I ended up feeling, I think, a little bit like those like legendary 1968 audiences who saw it without ever having a real preconception of what a genuinely scary experience at the movies was. Mm. That was huge for me. And then um, I special ordered a VHS tape of Dawn of the Dead because I was like, well, I got I to gotta see where this fucking ends up. <laughs> and the Dawn of the Dead VHS came and it was... Um, that great old poster image of um, the guy in the gas mask in silhouette. And the day it came, I remember I had just come back from a school trip to Washington, D.C. So I came home and it was this rainy day. Terrible. How old were you at that point? I I think I was 12. Rainy day, dark in the middle of the day, kind of rainy. And the power went out. So I couldn't watch the movie. And I was just sitting there all day and all night with the the cover with the guy in the gas mask trying to imagine what the movie inside it was like. Mm. And then it wasn't until the next day that I got to watch it. Ooh, I love that anticipation. Yeah, that was huge. That was a huge one. Mm. And then the movie was nothing like what I expected and really worked. How do you like that one compared to Night of the Living Dead? It used to be my favorite. I think the older I get, the more I gravitate to the first one. But I Mm -hmm. think Dawn really is exceptionally well done and it has um it has this style that he tries in all his movies romero and i don't know if he's ever i don't know if the combination of setting and time frame ever worked out so well as it did in that one where you have these images of these like really flat interior landscapes like when they're in the back in those halls and it's just crates marked cdc everywhere Mm. and this gaudy furniture they dragged in in the foreground to try to doll it up and there's just this like emptiness to the look of it that I thought really worked. And it's kind of an interesting one because I've seen it a bunch of times and I feel like every time I see it, I see a different cut of it. So like it's never the same movie for me. It's always kind of mutating. Right. Like sometimes it's a funnier cut than I remember. Sometimes it's like a longer one. It feels more like a, a novel. Sometimes it's darker. You know, it's just it's a weird like mutant movie where there's so many different forms of it. Hmm. Yeah, that's one where, like, anytime I watch it, I'm watching it and I'm like, this isn't as good as I remember. And then it gets to a point in the movie, you know, when they start dealing with, like, the sadness of the life that they're living. Yeah. That's when I'm like, oh, wait. It turns into a Douglas Sirk movie in the middle. (laughs) Exactly. And that's a great comparison, too, because, like, the color of, like, the zombie skin is that kind of, like, Technicolor Sirk kind of quality, too. Um, but like, that's a movie where like, every time I watch it, I have that same kind of like, you know, just, all right, whatever. And then I'm like, oh shit. Like, I always forget how great it is once it turns that great corner. That was a big one for me too, because I watched that one with my dad who walked out of that movie in 78 at the part when, um, the guy kicks down the door and shoots that 
person's head off. And there's just that like slow motion shot of the guy's head exploding. Mm. My dad walked out of that in 78. So um, I ordered this thing and he looks at the box and says, like, what the fuck is this shit? You're kidding me? You are not watching this fucking movie. And then I was like, well, no, I definitely am. And um, I eventually I talked him into like sitting down and just watching the movie with him, with me. And we're like getting ready. We're getting the popcorn ready. We're sitting down and everything. We're turning down the lights. He's like, this movie's fucking garbage. It's a piece of shit. I walked out of this in 78. <laughs> it was like the worst date of my life. Like, blah, blah, blah. He's talking shit about this movie. He was with a girl? Did you leave her in the theater? No, it was a drive-in. Oh, oh. damn. They he walked out, out of his car? I guess he drove <laughs> out of it. Maybe he just abandoned the car. But anyway, <laughs> I, you'd have to ask him. Um, but I'd love to hear the girl's side of that story. <laughs> well, well, the movie starts, and it was just really interesting to see what time did to that movie. Because it starts and there's that that opening shot of the like the um, carpeted walls that it kind of looks like blood and it pulls out and you see her like having a nightmare against the wall. And it's like the most 70s possible fucking image, red carpeted walls. And seeing it outside of the 70s, it's almost like eerie because it doesn't look like a real place. And then it keeps going. You're like in the middle of this crisis when it begins. They're all already yelling at each other in this right. newsroom. And my dad was getting like real fucking into it. And now like he adores that whole fucking genre. He he um we went to we ended up going to see the remake of it together. I love like the twice. remake. Yeah, I love it too. He loves it. He like yeah. Shaun of the Dead, all those, he fucking adores them. And it was all because um because of that one viewing like twenty years later or whatever. Twenty eight days later (laughs) yeah of this movie that he hated when it came out see your dad and i would probably get along because that's exactly how i enjoy movies is that i i hate them and then ignore them for a year or longer or 17 28 years and then come back to them and then i'm like holy shit like i'm thinking of uh ken russell i've always like i was always intrigued by him because i remember uh at the museum of the moving image in queens here in new york they had um uh altered states like masks and stuff all the special effects and i remember thinking how creepy it was exhibit yeah Yeah. and and i always every time we went there i'd look at it and think it was so weird and creepy and then uh they had a little clip of it and i like i'd always think about it and i finally saw that movie and and that was a good movie but he has such a you know ken russell is so specific in his style all of his movies look like he made it you know and Mm. it's almost like there's like a weird detachment, but like everything's sort of always moving and things are kind of just ugly or dirty a lot, but they're all technicolor and like... They always look like the trailers Stanley Kubrick made to me. Hmm. Like the full Ken Russell movies always remind me of like the trailer for Clockwork Orange. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Yeah. They have that sort of like quick, snappy, yeah. but you know... Did you ever read Altered States, the book? No. Real good. Patty Chayefsky wrote it. I think I have it I, on the shelf right yeah, above your head. It's literally yeah. right behind my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, it's a great movie. I think it's such a solid sci-fi. Even with the like, psychedelic LSD aspects, which now I like love. Like it, At first you think, look at it, and you're like, this is fucking out there. And I came into it from the other way. I came into it as a Patty Chayefsky fan. I think it was the first Ken Russell I saw, and I really like him now. But it was uh, it was just like not at all the style. Having read the book and knowing it was like a Chayefsky movie, I was expecting like something like Network or like Marty. <laughs> and then I got Altered States, and it really worked on me. It was just very unexpected. That's all. I see. I love sometimes what happens. Like the I I found that the way that I really get into movies is um, 
uh, visually, uh, <laughs> haha. But um, people have like a really specific style, or if they work with specific actors all the time, that's usually when I start to get really into them. Like Ken Russell, I, I would like you know saw one movie. It looks so cool that I watched all of his movies. I'm thinking uh, about like uh, Killian Murphy. Actually, I'm a big fan of old Killian Murphy, the actor, and I got into him He's after. A pretty man. He is a beautiful man. And but he was picking some good ones for. That's time. exactly yeah. it. Yeah. Is that I saw him in, as in Batman as Scarecrow, and I just remember thinking. This guy does not blink, and I couldn't tell if he was like a man or a woman. <laughs> he, I, I still remember seeing him in Twenty Eight Days Later in theaters yeah. when that one came out. He's he, just like fearless in it. That opening shot where he's just like naked on the bed, and yeah, then he's man. just such a bumbling mess for the next fifteen minutes. He's absolutely fearless in that movie. And then you go out back to his all, all of his other movies, and they're so great. Like, I mean, he had like there's so many gems. If you just like go on his IMDb and just like rent everything in order w- that you can find, like On the Edge, Disco Pigs. Wasn't he in When That Shakes the Barley? When That Shakes the Barley. That was great. That was great. Um, Breakfast on Pluto. Breakfast um, at Tiffany's. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, Freaking, even like Red Eye was a great movie. The West Craven oh, movie. That's a great, it's exactly what you want I, out of it. That's one of those movies I always forget exists. And like, it was snappy, it even, was perfect. I don't even think I liked it when I saw it, but just the thought of that movie existing, <laughs> it just brings a smile on my face. Like, I have the best memories of, of just it, but I don't even think I liked it. <laughs> Red Eye should have been its trailer. Because the trailer for the trailer Red Eye was wonderful. unstoppable. Yeah. And then you see the movie and you're like, oh, it, yeah, it is the trailer. It's just, just the trailer. More <laughs> scenes in the middle. The trailer that just keeps going and yeah. going and going. Have you seen Sunshine? I liked old Sunshine. I know I people like hated Sunshine, it. No. Yeah, I liked it. I was just like real smitten with how it looked. I can't even tell you what happened in the movie now. I just remember the sunlight. I just, yeah, I just remember thinking, you know, it's same thing. It's like all these movies where he's picking great directors. I mean, he picked all these movies because he wanted to work with either the director or because he uh, read the book. He liked the story, like, because he read all the interviews as well, which I did. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, I don't know. And and I do that a lot. I I found that you find one uh, person that you like, either a director or an actor, and then you just follow them, you know, through whatever, wherever it takes you. And then suddenly, you know, you're watching every movie by Danny Boyle because, you know, you liked Killian Murphy in one of them. And then from Danny Boyle, you move on to, you know, you just, you you keep moving on and until, and then at that point you wake up and you've watched 700 movies and you're like, oh, I guess I'm into movies. Well, yeah, actors become their kind of their own auteur in that sense. And that was the thing that, what I touched on earlier, that really drew me to the comedies that I got into when I was younger was that like a guy like Bill Murray there's a certain trust involved when you watch Bill Murray movie, at least at a certain time period. Like he sort of made some crappy ones in like the mid to late nineties. And then he had his resurgence, but there was always that, like, it just seemed like the movies that they chose to make, they were choosing movies that you would like, you know, and that they would like rather than a lot of other actors where it just felt like, Oh, this is the next job. And this is the next job. And a lot of that, do you get to completists with, too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I'll, I'll, I think I've seen every single Bill Murray movie. Um, haven't liked all of them, but see, I do it too. But I always do it like an idiot, and I go for people who like huge chunks of their filmography you can't get at. Mm, like yeah, that's I've always been, unfortunate. Yeah, I, I, the first one and the biggest one, and really the defining one for me was John Ford, who. Um, well, that's a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a huge filmography. He has 144 credits as director, 
Um, and it's really like, it's really close to 120 because that's counting a lot of, um, I don't know, just filler stuff. But of that 120, I think at this point now, I literally have spreadsheets of these things because that's how I live my life. <laughs> um, of those, I think I've seen like 60 to 70 now. And you hit a brick wall because a good portion of his silent stuff either doesn't exist or exists only in these archives. And you end up waiting. I remember I waited um, probably like six years for that movie Upstream to be unearthed. Mm. And then I saw that one and I checked it off the list. And Edgar Ulmer, I've been doing the same thing for. He was a Poverty Row director. And with him, it's even worse. And it's maddening because he has movies that he's said in interviews. He said that um, I did a bunch of Westerns in the 30s and just never put my name on them. So you'll be like, you piece of shit. Oh, man. You have no idea what the ripple effect would be 70 years later in me. <laughs> I don't really do it with actors a lot, but I've, I've been doing it with um, Mitchum now. I've been trying to watch all the Robert Mitchum movies in oh, the yeah, 70s. That's, that's definitely an not even Not even the like prime stuff. His stuff in the 70s. Because I think it's so interesting when he's in his like straight up, I don't give a shit, drunk all the time phase. Because most of them are really bad, but then out of nowhere, you'll get a couple like the friends of Eddie Coyle. The best. Where you're like, yeah, you need to have descended absolutely Such into hell. Such a good movie, yeah. That movie, man. And that's the type of performance that like an actor who I think gave more of a shit could not have given. Mm. You needed like you needed Robert Mitchum at his lowest point, like fuck it, to the really just dive in. The great thing about him too is like even if you follow him to movies like Holiday Affair, which on the surface is just like standard romantic comedy, but he brings this darkness to it just with his like sort of pothead uncaring vibe yeah because he's a notorious pothead yeah he's a calypso singer man yeah came with the territory and he just he's the romantic lead in that movie and it's about like this woman you know it's around the holidays needs to get you know present for the kid kind of vibe like it's that very like light vibe but he's just like the way that he looks at this woman, and her name is escaping me at the moment, but the way that he looks at her, he's undressing her with every glance. He's thinking about all the things that he can do to her, you know, in bed. Like, just with every glance, and you're like, oh my God, you sleazy bastard, but you love him so much. Because he's like, he's the man in the movie, and he's the man in general in movies, because he's Robert fucking Mitchum. <laughs> and it's just, it's wonderful to see that movie and have that added layer that makes it almost like this sleazy 70s movie, even though I think it came out in like the 50s. One of the most interesting I found from him was, um, and this is in the Warner Archives, so next time they do a sale, all y'all should order this movie. It's called Going Home. It's 1971, and uh, it has like a five on IMDb, and like all the critics hated it when it came out. Ebert hated it. Vincent Camby hated it. They all hated it. And like, I can kind of see why, but the way it's aged made it one of the more rewarding film viewings I had in a long time. What it's about is um, Mitchum plays this dude who's like an alcoholic, and he's got a young kid and a wife, and one day he gets drunk and just murders his wife with a beer bottle and uh, goes to jail. And the kid, who's like three or whatever, watches the whole thing. And then the movie is set 15 years later when Mitchum gets out of jail, and he moves back in with the son. And it's this, like... To be honest, they don't do the premise, which is like, I mean, that premise was handed down from fucking heaven. That's one of the best sure, premises yeah. I've ever heard. They don't do it justice, the writers, and probably not the director either, but the actors just annihilate it. And the, there's this this running thing through the whole movie where the, the son is trying to figure out why 
Mitchum killed his wife. And Mitchum's response really is just, I was drunk. I didn't have a reason. It was, mm. it just happened. I was drunk. And it's this type of thing that, um, I don't think a lot of actors could play that. I think a lot of actors, what would happen is they would, as actors, be searching for the real meaning under that and try to be communicating something other than that. Mm. But Mitchum in the 70s, he could just look you right in the eye and he could say, I I killed her and I didn't have a reason. And you believed it. Yeah, and that can carry a a movie that on paper might be subpar and in the director's hands might be subpar. Just that moment of of yeah. honesty. There's like four or five it. four or five scenes in it that are spectacular, and you mm. kind of have to wade through the rest of the movie to get to them. But they're it, it's I think it's very much worth a view. Sure, going home, 1971, Mitchum Warner Archive. So to bring it back to we're talking about being a teenager and watching movies and stuff. I remember, you know, David Lynch is that great kind of gateway guy. And Paul Thomas Anderson was that for me, too, where, like, when I saw Magnolia, that that was one of the ones where, like, I became obsessed with, you know, like, that was just, I didn't even understand it at the time. I was just, like, enamored by it. I was enamored that somebody was, like, taking these dramatic moments and orchestrating them in this in this way that felt, like, very new to me. And it's something that's been done a lot, the whole kind of vignette that ties together across all sorts of people kind of thing. That, that's been done a couple times since, many times before, that kind of thing. But it was just like, that was one of those movies that just waked me up to the possibilities of movies. And then David Lynch, like, like it almost like depressed me, Magnolia. And then David Lynch was there on, you know, IFC with like just you know, catching like bits of blue velvet or something. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going down the rabbit hole even further. And then like Lost Highway and stuff. Like it just sent me on this path of being obsessed with drama and being obsessed with like the dark side of cinema and storytelling and drama. And like that got me wanting to write and make movies. Like that was the thing where I was like, oh my God, it can, it can be this strange expression it can be this like ultimate art form where you can really like construct these lives in a way that you can't with like a book or like music or anything. Like it was just like that. That's really what I, I probably wouldn't even have wanted to write comedy scripts or anything like that. Like it, it took like that kind of darkness to make me even want to start writing screenplays. Like I don't, if I'd stayed on the comedy thing, I probably wouldn't have even wanted to make movies i probably would have wanted to get straight into comedy you know those two they always come up and i always feel vaguely guilty because i've never been a big fan of either of them Mm. lynch and pta i always i i think they're both incredibly talented but i feel like there are certain filmmakers that you have a window with sure yeah and if you miss the window you'll always be sort of lost at sea with them because i i I didn't see magnolia until it was probably in college. Mm. And by that time, I mean, I had already gone through um, Altman and a lot of... Right, his influences. Yeah, a lot of his influences. So that 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 strike of the new from all of it, I got really from Nashville, mm. which I saw when I was like 15 and I, I couldn't even take it. I was like, you can't do this. Stop it. <laughs> but yeah, and, and Lynch, I got into Cronenberg when I was younger because my dad was a really big fan of the original The Fly and I was like, that movie's dumb as shit, man. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch the remake of it. Hmm. And one day the remake came on. And I was like, 
whoa because <laughs> that movie like that that movie murders it it is so good that remake yeah the fly so it was like almost out of spite that i watched it in the first place mm. and that that's i think i didn't get into lynch because i got into cronenberg that's funny because you can do the same thing with the movie the blob essentially yeah the remake of the blob is like a practical effects like masterpiece it's so over the top with like all the gooiness and the gore and all that and you can have that kind of same comparison with like the original the blob yeah that said i do love all those most of those 50s monster movies those were a huge sure, influence yeah. for me growing up i still think the thing from another world the 1951 one is better than the um yeah you love that one yeah i think it's just brilliant i think it's better than the carpenter one and nobody agrees with me and it's just me and like Couple probably a guys. bunch of people like cruising into their 70s now yeah. or on that train but <laughs> I'm riding you, that train. If you were at an old folks home, you could probably find a lot of people that agreed with you. Oh, they'd back one. me up. And they'd be right. <laughs> See, I never saw a John Hughes movie, like, period. I, I've wow. seen... Not even Ferris Bueller? I saw Ferris Bueller on television, but I don't even know that I've seen the whole thing. I feel like that's something that people that you... Number one, need to see young... That was a huge one Huge influence on people. That yeah. and, and Donnie Darko... Which I remember seeing as a teenager, thinking as a teenager, oh, that's so cool. And now I like have zero respect <laughs> that, for that it. That was your teenager oh, voice? I've, yeah, man. I've come around on that one completely differently. When I saw it initially as a teenager, I was like, this is shit. David Lynch is where it's at. Cronenberg's where it's at. Like all these guys are like, this is just fake shit. And like I didn't have any respect for it. But then there were images in it that stuck with me. And then I watched it again. I was like, all right, it's pretty good. And I've now, never seen it. You never seen it? Now I fucking adore it because I get what he was going for. Because people got on this train with that movie where everybody was trying to figure it out. And that was the problem with that movie is that everybody was trying to figure it out and solve it. And then people, it seems like people got sick of that because they couldn't figure it out because it never fully lined up. And so they moved on to like trying to figure out the show Lost. Like that was their new, <laughs> let's figure out something. This is, thing. yeah. I think this generation of film viewers, I think you're dead right, is sort of lost in this concept of trying to solve movies. Yeah. Because when you think about it, like the big influences for a lot of people in our generation are like Usual Suspects was a huge one for everybody. Mm -hmm. Lost. Later on, like Battlestar. There's just this sort of like generation of puzzle movies. And I think if you start ODing on them when you're too young... You lose the ability to like mo watch a movie without a twist. I remember I was talking to somebody about, um, I think Rocky, and I was just going on and on about how like I just love that first Rocky. I think it's, it's such incredible. A, yeah, it's Top such 10. a yeah. such a masterpiece. And they were like, "Yeah, I liked it, but like there's no twist." <laughs> <laughs> and it was dead serious. It was his, the concept of drama to him was like contingent on having a twist. It would be like for for like a normal person. It would be like, you know, reading a book and there's no villain or whatever. Well, that's like an adolescent thing to get locked into. You know, a concept of drama that's formed by what you see when you're like 13 or 12 or something like that. Like the example I was bringing up with Donnie Darko is that now going back and watching it, I realize that all the brushstrokes of sci-fi and horror that he was putting in there were just brushstrokes to be like, oh, wait, dude. Being a teenager is like this. Like it's it's not that this story is about this guy and you have to figure out what's going on. No, it's just that 
it, it's a very confusing time period. It's an unsolvable time period. So all this time travel and all this stuff like that doesn't even fully line up. It's because you can think about your teenage years and never fully understand them. And when you're in them, you don't understand them. You feel like you're sort of being carried through them, much like the fucking, uh, you know, rainbow. What I don't even know what the fuck to call them. <laughs> I'm sure they have. What, what do they call them in the movie? They have some name for them, but like the sort of energy that comes from your chest that like leads you around through life and stuff like that. It's also clear now that it was all just metaphor. But at the time, everybody was like coming up with theories online. If you even to this day, if you Google Donnie Darko, everybody's got a theory and tangent universe and alternate universe. And he went through here and he linked back to here. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure he planned a lot of that stuff out when he was writing it, just to so that he could stay on track with it. But it's totally moot. Like it doesn't mean anything when you're actually watching it. See, you make the movies. You make me want to watch the movie again and see if I still feel the same way. Because I remember first seeing it, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was cool. I thought it was creepy, and I thought it was, you know, it was like stylish, essentially. And and yeah. you know, as a teenager, you just kind of want to surround yourself by uh, styles and coolness and too, coolness. Yeah. yeah. And then I remember, you know, like Dawson's it, Creek. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I actually never watched that either, but um. Uh, and then, you know, the next time you see it subsequently at house parties or, you know, whatever, you see it over and over, and then you house start parties. to realize that it's like, hey, man. I was Those like, are weird parties. <laughs> the Donnie Darko parties. Yeah, you know, you just keep seeing it, and then you're like, man, this movie sucks. Like, I keep seeing it, and it had no... If, at the time, I remember thinking, yeah, this is no point. It, the, the point is that it's meant to just be cool, and it's not. And then, yeah, I haven't seen it I think in the, years. The coolness was definitely imposed by the audience. It doesn't, when I watch it now, it doesn't even strike me as a cool movie. It just strikes me as this very personal kind of, like I'd never, here's the great thing about that movie is that Back to the Future, you can make the same case for, is that the the time travel aspect was kind of an emotional choice. You know, it was a, uh, a metaphoric kind of wishing you could change the things that like shaped you when you were in high school kind of vibe. And even like movies like Peggy Sue Got Married kind of pick up on that too. But like Donnie Darko is like the really dark version of it that accepts that you can't understand this. Like Back to the Future, you can understand. And Peggy Sue Got Married, like you can understand. And a lot of these movies that are about like going back and fixing something, you understand. But it this is the movie that's about doing that for your teenage years. And you can't understand it. You know, so that's like the the thing that I love about that movie because it fills that kind of hole of, you know, it satisfies the not understanding time travel aspect and the not understanding your teenage years aspect. And it just combines the two and it just becomes this puzzle that you're not supposed to solve. What did you two think of Back to the Future? Was that a big one for you two? That was, yeah. Like, I, that was one where I got obsessed with it for a little while. I never connected to two or three. Like, I tried to connect with two a lot. Yeah. I've seen that movie a lot. It doesn't do it for me. I like the first one, though. It's really fun. So you're both going to throw your microphones at me because I haven't seen it. I you hate it. Seen, you haven't <laughs> really? seen Back to the Future? Yeah, I, it's one of those movies that I just... Uh, and I, I've had multiple friends, you know, want to slap me across the face because I they I just never saw it. I don't know why. My parents just don't own it and then it never happened at a young age and then, you know... You're going to be alarmed by how corny it is, too. There's a lot of, like, 
ham-fisted stuff like with the the guy that's like sweeping at like the soda place and oh like God. i'm gonna run for mayor and oh, the guy's like the fuck out of my black guy <laughs> i that stuff makes me cringe too it's like the worst writing it's the worst just vibe my thing with that movie though is i have almost like a physical repulsion to it mm-hmm. and i feel bad about it because i think on paper it's like pretty good you know the actors are great the idea is solid but i think it's there's this like breed of I wonder if it's the film stock. There's this breed of like mid 80s movies where there's something about the pattern of lighting and texture in the movies that when I was a kid and even today, but mostly when I was a kid, it was like trying to listen to a song that there's a lot of just hum in the background of it. It was it was like they physically hurt my eyes. And the two big ones, three big ones actually were um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Back to the Future and The Goonies. I fucking could not look at those three movies when there was a kid. When I was a kid, there's something about the the way they present light that maybe I was very aesthetically sensitive as a child. I think you're onto something. Couldn't do it. Because I am just going to go ahead and blanket say I hate every movie from the 80s for the most part, <laughs> except for Purple Rain, which is the best film. But well, I don't Purple know. Purple Rain suffers from that too. That shitty film stock in a couple I agree. of scenes. Alien suffered from it until they did that restoration yeah. of it. The sixties stuff is the same way. I've spoken to people who they really love those like classic late sixties movies on paper, but the 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 film stock of them that like bleachy high grain stuff they just can't fucking look at it. I can't watch the birds. There's a lot of that color Hitchcock stuff that just the the vibe of the color and the lighting. Like, there's this overlit quality to the interiors and, like, the house. And I get that that's, like, a deliberate kind of throwing you off kind of thing, you know. But it's just, like, except for, like, Douglas Sirk. Like, Douglas Sirk, like, that's the kind of light of, like, I guess sort of that era that I dig. But, like, a lot of the 60s color stuff I just can't look at. It just makes me physically ill. Yeah, there are some eras. It's, it's, I really think it's, like... When you hear a song and there's a hum or a buzz or something, yeah. in it, it's just this well, it's, like physical. It's like having perfect pitch when you're listening to a song that's like slightly like a centigrade, like off with the uh, pitch or something like that. If you have perfect pitch, then you're like, oh, I can't even listen to this. But like most people are like, yeah, it's fine. I'm into 60s color, though, because it looks so fake. It kind of looks like an illustration to me. I love that. I love that stuff. But I, I, there's, I feel like maybe everybody's got their one. That it just, oh, sure, whatever yeah. the look is, it does not line up. A lot of people have that for black and white. Yeah. In ge- right across the board. Yeah. You know, they can't even sit through it. But I um, I really, I feel guilty about it with the 80s stuff. So I try to push myself. And like, there's a lot of stuff from them that really does look great. I think Terminator 1 is beautifully shot. Of course, yeah. And Mike's Murder is, I think, just a gorgeous looking movie. And even like the Decalogue, it took me a while to reconcile myself with how the Decalogue looks. But it's starting to grow on me. And then there are other ones like um, Pauline at the Beach. We we talked about this. I think it's the ugliest, one of the ugliest I movies I've ever liked. gorgeous, beyond gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. I adore it. Like, I mean, I worship at the altar of Nestor Almendros, but I mean, that, that one's gorgeous. But, but I think you might have saw it like a weird print of it because like... No, I saw the regular Netflix print. It's just the it's like, aesthetics of it. Yeah. Because it's the it. same thing. I think The Birds is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever oh, seen. I can't even look at that. There's just some... Yeah, it's like a pitch thing. There's just something... Yeah. Sometimes you can't, you can't reconcile it. 
See, but the 80s movies, what kills me, I mean, number one, I just don't like the 80s, but I, I don't like the style. I don't Y'all like the music. I don't like the 80s. Too much Reagan. Hey, well, I, I don't mean, like 70s, the president, but. 70s are my favorite decade for movies, music. It, that, that's my shit. But I like the 80s, too. I think there's some good stuff there as far as look. Is Do it, the right is it, thing. Do the right thing. It's beautiful. Uh, See, I right. would even, that's not the 80s stuff that I would like. I, I How can't about look Man at the right thing. Manhunter, I think, yeah. is a great movie, but it has that such corny '80s. No, bullshit. I love, I love the look of that. I love that '80s look, the like Miami Vice, Thief, Manhunter, that like hot Absolutely, color pastel yeah. look. It's that like drab, fucking everything's a shade of blue or gray, fucking like Ferris Bueller look. Uh, Actually, Ferris Bueller is not one of the worst. Ferris examples. Bueller is gorgeous, dude. Ferris, Ferris Bueller, is a Ferris Bueller, movie. that's yeah. That's not a good example. Maybe more like Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. Breakfast Club, I think there's just there's Let's nothing. Breakfast Club is nothing to in that movie. Yeah, that's a good point. The color in that one, it's just sometimes there. it works though because Terminator kind of has that, and I think it's great looking. War Games also mm-hmm. kind of has that, and I think War Games is a really nice looking movie. There's just some like confluence. Mm-hmm. Princess Bride, I think, is horrendous looking. Yeah, you've gone on record with Princess Bride yeah. that that's probably the ugliest movie. Ever made, right? Didn't it's you? up there. I think. Yeah. It's, I think it's the ugliest great movie ever made. Yeah. That's Whereas Stand By Me is beautiful looking. Same Gorgeous. director, I think same cinematographer one year before. And it's one of the best looking movies of the decade. Mm. Tron looks great. <laughs> Tron does look great. <laughs> Tron looks like shit. Fuck you guys. <laughs> Tron is disgusting. Oh, what do you love think Tron. of the look of Tron 2? Uh, worse. <laughs> I, I could sit there and just watch that movie occur in front of me forever if, as long as i didn't have to hear anything anybody said the first one or the second one the second one and they never cut to a close-up of anybody's face <laughs> if it's just like the lights going past uh-huh. you and like robot men jumping onto motorcycles building in midair like i could watch that all day Tron the first one like i like all the the cgi stuff like the light cycles and stuff like i like that but anytime i'm looking at anybody standing there with that stupid fucking grayish glow and stuff i'm like oh my god you look like shit like it's just i can't do it like and tron's like a movie that i i've tried to like a lot because first of all the name is just great <laughs> tron it's just a good name it's a good solid american it's name. a good idea the whole video game thing and being stuck in the computer and all that and the computer pieces have lives and like that's all great and well but like i couldn't get into that man like i you know what i got into around that time when i was like exploring like 80s movies because that's like a kind of a teenage thing too it's like a thing of like oh my god the 80s that's an interesting time let me look at that because that's not that far before me you know it's kind of you can reach back with that like that's almost like the older brother older sister time you know where like they remember it a bit more than you do so you're kind of reaching back and like that's almost like point of connection but Buckaroo Banzai that was one where like I really connected to like an 80s movie that like it wasn't even the movie per se because it kind of falls apart right after the first act like my interest in it just wanes right after like all the great iconic stuff of like John Lithgow putting like the piece of fuzz like on his tongue and like zapping and having like a weird memory and stuff like that and like the thing of him zooming through the boulder and the the great scene where he's at the nightclub and he's playing the song and the girl's crying and stuff like that like all the great stuff in Bucker Banzai is really loaded into the front of that movie and that was a movie that was so big for me when I was a kid when I was a teenager actually because it it made me realize that like a hero character 
could be this person that just can do everything because he's like a scientist. He's a rock star. He's like all these wonderful and it's things. Jeff Goldblum, right? Well, it was Peter Weller playing Bonsai, but yeah, Jeff Goldblum was in it too. It was I a great cast, it. wonderful <laughs> cast. Um, but it was like one of those movies that made me realize something about like heroes, not even just in movies, but just in life of like the amount of things that you can do in life. And like, like, why is it not plausible for a scientist to also be able to play guitar? Like, there's no reason why scientists can't like a brain surgeon and a fucking molecular whatever can also like shred on guitar. It like, broke through the stocks for you then? Yeah, it was like it it broke through like the, the click sort of mentality of like, and a, a lot of the 80s movies do suffer from that where it's like the jocks and the geeks and the this and the that. Like it just puts it into these classifications. It was like Bucker Bonza, he's just everything because he just realized I want to do like all these cool different things. And that was like, that switched on to me as far as like, I want to write. I want to make music. I want to do all sorts of stuff. I don't want to be limited by like some sort of group or classification. I just want to do whatever is fun, you know, whatever I'm genuinely interested in. So that was like, it's almost like the anti-80s movie because it breaks that mold of classification and you're this, you're that. And you can probably relate to this hugely, Jenna. When I was a kid and I would see movies about like a kid who lives like in suburbia and goes to, like, uh, high school and, like, rides his bike there or, like, drives when he's, like, 16 and stuff like that. Us living in, like, Brooklyn our whole lives. Like, I thought that that was, like, this movie idea of life. I didn't realize that people, like, actually lived in the suburbs and, like, had these... Had lockers, yeah. Yeah, like, all these... <laughs> like, or I thought it was so dated that it was just, like, gone. You know what I mean? Like, I thought it was either this completely made-up thing... Or it was, oh, that was back in, like, the 80s or the 70s. That's what it was like or something like that. And I'm talking about watching, like, 90s movies as I'm growing right. up. Or, like, even watching, like, sitcoms, like, The House, you know, and, like, The Backyard. And, like, all these, like, things that for a lot of people not living in Brooklyn are just, oh, that's just life. You know, like, that always, it just, there was this distance where it, it became this, that's just the movie TV world. And I couldn't even conceive of like people actually living their lives that way. It seemed so lucky too. Like it seemed like idyllic and like, I would feel like if I had that life, I would feel like I was living in a movie, you know, like I would, every single day I would just wake up and I would, you know, Oh, I'm going to school. I got to get my bike and ride off and hope I'm not late for class. And there's the bell, you know, like all the stuff. Like I, it would just take me out of life, you know? Like That all was made up, though. It was. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Saved by the stuff. Bell was the greatest liar of the 20th century. <laughs> I still remember going into high school for the first day and looking around and being like, fucking Saved by the Bell. <laughs> you goddamn liars. Because in that show, like, nobody ever had to go, go to class. You were just, like, loitering in the halls all yeah. day. And if you tried to do that in real life, you got yelled at. Well, not in Murrow. I think that's why I avoided all <laughs> those where, John Hughes Not where movies, me and so. Jenna went. You oh, can pretty yeah, much yeah. stick around in the hallways. <laughs> yeah. I had that with um, winter, because I grew up in South Florida, where one day it was 50 degrees, so I didn't go to school. That's a true story. <laughs> that's a very true story. Um, oh, man. So, our schools, we didn't have hallways. We had essentially breezeways. There was, the hallways were all outside. 
and you just had like classrooms that you walked because you didn't have to build for the weather down there. How did you not just walk home every day? And oh, just, I used to skip all yeah. the fucking time. No, it was actually, it was really bad. But um, this concept of like a school having a hallway until I moved up to New Jersey in seventh grade was just like the weirdest thing to me. Yeah. And winter was the weirdest thing when you'd sitcoms were the big one. Like Seinfeld, when it would be cold for a few episodes of Seinfeld. And I just, I like wouldn't, I couldn't really understand like the borders of cold. Right. You know, like when did it become cold? <laughs> was it 40 degrees? Was that cold? And I knew that there were different jackets, but I didn't know when, like, was it like, I still have trouble with this, honestly. Like, when you do you switch to George, winter? George and his Gore-Tex coat. And remember that episode where he has like yeah. a special Gore-Tex? Yeah, that might as well have taken place on a space station to me as a kid. <laughs> I love that episode, but it was just yeah. like, the, the the fact that it was so cold they couldn't stand outside, I was like, so that's like negative 30? What, what, is, what are we looking at? I just like, it, yeah. it was all very, very foreign to me. Mm. Um, you know, that reminds me of how my, my understanding of the... Uh, the South is basically uh, like Coen Brothers movies, <laughs> like Raising Arizona, right? Yeah, <laughs> or the Midwest, I guess. Well, actually, another you know directors that uh, are major influences. Uh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou was like a total game changer for me. Yeah, a lot of those Coen Brothers movies they kind of recalibrate your brain. Fargo definitely was one that was like it just kind of changes your idea of how adults deal with each other. Almost yeah. like they they almost seem like big kids in like a lot of the Coen Brothers movies. Fargo Fargo was a big one because when I was a kid, I always hated that ending. I always wanted it to have like a bigger ending. But the older I got, and like the more I returned to it, the more I love it. And I think that's the only way to end a, a movie like that now, where you have this like very normal, nice woman looking death square in the face and saying, "Don't you know any better?" It's like such a Right. It's one of those things that when you see it as an early teenager, it like bugs into your head because you're like, that's not right. And then that little acorn of doubt turns into a seed of making a movie. Yeah, Coen Brothers, that's like almost like a perfect transitional thing for like a teenager or something into like more grown up whatever movie. I know. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's plenty of the, I mean, Big Lebowski is a great transitional movie. That you like, you know, appreciate as a as a younger person for the humor, and then you yeah, get older and you realize onto. there's a lot to grab onto. Like you can see the art, you can see that pretty clearly, but there's enough to grab hold of humor wise and just the way that the people carry themselves. That's just this great transitional thing. But that also, you know, the problem with that is that also becomes kind of like a dead end for a lot of like supposed film fans and movie geeks or whatever where they're like they become obsessed with things like lebowski and fight club stuff they switched on to when they were like early teenagers and thought this was the coolest stuff like it becomes about like what's the coolest movies what's like the movies with like the most swagger essentially that uh you know you stay there because it's like it becomes this safe zone of like all right this is the coolest movie so i've figured that out you know yeah it's like i'll never understand people who like both pulp fiction and um boondock saints because pulp mm-hmm. fiction's unbelievably well put together unbelievably smart fun and really funny and boondock saints is like that movie's like little brother 
just dogging its heels the whole time. And then I guess, I mean, that's a whole subgenre of viewers is people who are just chasing a Pulp Fiction. Right. And that's a, a Lebowski. And you saw that all the time with like, you know, friends of yours or whatever, when you're like a teenager of like that loved just anything with guys with guns that had like a cool factor. I mean, in fairness, I still do. Yeah. Yeah. I love, <laughs> but I go into a different area with that. You know, I'll go into like, you know, there are deep cuts in like the eighties of like, uh, and early nineties of, you know, not Steven Seagal, not Jean-Claude Van Damme, but like these other guys like on the side, like this guy, Daniel Bernhardt or Berent or something like that, who is in Bloodsport 2. That's like awesome. Like Bloodsport 2 is incredible. I like it better than the first one with, with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. But like you start finding these more niche expressions of coolness and fighting and action that are so divorced from the supposed kind of Miramax coolness that kind of came up around that time period. That's a great term, Miramax coolness. I, I'm, yeah. <laughs> Shit, that's got to be a piece, Miramax coolness. Because that's really what it was. It was all centered around fucking Miramax. It was all Weinstein. Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting little thesis you just hit upon then. That maybe really the importance of these movies of our life kind of movies is that you don't stop there. And I think the difference between like yeah, casual they don't film become viewers dead ends for yeah, which yeah. is okay. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's the difference between casual film viewers and sort of like you have these sort of watershed movies for you, and then it can either become a hobby or like a vocation to watch them. And I think if you walk through that gateway of of well, what else is like this? Why is this this way? then it starts to become sort of a different path as a film viewer. You know, like something like a big one for me was, um, was like I said before, Night of the Living Dead. And that led not just to so many um, other horror movies, but so many movies from the 60s and 70s, which then led to this sort of like more general interest in these political movies that weren't about politics. Right. That's a gr- and that's a great thing about horror is that horror at its best can get very political without ever essentially feeling like it's even red or blue or essentially feeling like it has made up its mind about something. Yeah. You know? It can touch on all that stuff. And that's also a power of like an action movie too or even like a Rambo or something like that where... You, two people can watch the same movie and have completely different vibes about whether this was like tongue-in-cheek satire or if it was like, yeah, gung-ho, America kind of thing. I think the other thing is, though, I think there's a lot of people who really like actiony kind of movies who try to hide behind satire. I think there's a lot of yep. people who are really tempted to just say... Every kill, kill, kill movie they see is like secretly a satire. And I don't think, <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with like getting really into a movie that you think is just politically disgusting. Cause I think Commando is just like, I mean, that's what Reagan was doing to Latin America in movie form, <laughs> but it's also so much fun. Uh, it's wonderful. And I love Dirty Harry. Man. Yeah, Dirty, Dirty Harry is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Death Wish is a great example of a movie. Two people can watch with completely polar opposite political views and both enjoy it and think it's completely on their side. Yeah. And I think it's okay to like really like a movie and not think it's on your side. And I think that's 
it's more of a film critic problem than a film goer problem. But it, it feels like something that I see people worrying about a lot in like pieces mm-hmm. online and on like Twitter and everything. And I think like you don't necessarily have to love what it's saying to love how it says it. Sure. Yeah. And that's part of growing up, guys, right? Learning that lesson. <laughs> yeah. This is like our Wonder Years podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, how does that, movie, how does that uh, show end where he's like, the kid's like, all right, can we go play fucking baseball now or something? And he's like, all right, son. Like, isn't that how Wonder Years ends? <laughs> isn't that the whole thing? I don't, I don't think he said, can we go play fucking baseball now? <laughs> <laughs> I, but isn't the punchline of that entire show where, like, the kid's like, cool story, dad. Can we just go fucking play baseball? Who the fuck has seen all of the Wonder Years? I did. That's incredible. <laughs> I've seen all the Wonder Years. Isn't there, like, 190 seasons or something? Yeah, I got addicted to that show. They used to play them on TV, and I used to they they would play them in a in proper order, so like you can loop back around if you missed some, you know. Y'all guys didn't do that. Nick I watched it. it I think it was on Nick at Night. You guys didn't. Okay. Boy, Nick at Night was a big one growing up, though. That's an unsung mark. On- we got to touch on that on another day. That was yeah. Nick at Night did some good shit. All right, questions coming up after the break, and now. A movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. Life. Spoiler alert. You die at the end. This has been a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. Visit him at anthonykapfer.com. K-A-P-F-E-R. All right. Eric asks... What are the most smug films of all time? To be honest, I've always wondered why the site was named that. Well, my sort of vibe in that regard, like, I just like the sound of smug film. I like that you can call yourself a smug film critic and you're working for a site, It's but it's also, like, a description of you. But I also, like, I forget the quote, but somebody said, like, you should always say the worst thing somebody could say about you about yourself as like a descriptor almost like in when you're naming something i fer- i don't know where the fuck i read that it was probably some like weird idea i had that i'm trying to push off on some other writer well, uh, but the- like that was the kind of thing it was like people could call us like smug so smug film it almost becomes like a yeah okay is you that why rocky's call called that rocky because he's like kind of a lumpy guy i guess so but there's i think is, there is, is that truth the same to that policy where you kind of have to Build yourself on... Or Scarface, because he's got a scar exactly. on his face, so nobody could tease him about <laughs> there it. There you go. Well, we all agreed in the first podcast that we were the three people who didn't like Toy Story 3. I feel like that's where the smug comes in. I mean, I think that's not a bad in. thing. It seeps in because a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that we say, we don't think we're saying anything too controversial or too out of the ordinary, but some of the response we'll get from articles, like Greg aside... Some of the response, like, even, like, I'll get from, like, a piece on, like, uh, the innkeepers or something. Like, somebody would be like, you know, just, like, go crazy, like, cursing at me and, like, you stupid motherfucker, can't believe you. Like, and I'm like, <laughs> I can't even fathom why you would have that reaction. So, I think it was just because we're talking very seriously about film on the site, it just kind of attracts the people that would be like, oh, these smug guys where they think they know about film and all sorts of that. But to be- bring back to the question, what would be like an example of like a smug movie, I guess? I actually think Toy Story 3 is a very smug movie. 
I think so too. I think yeah. that movie is full of itself, and it's like really hyped up on the fact that it can make you feel a lot of things. Yeah, man. Like not really in like a Hitchcock way, where he's playing the audience like a piano. Like Toy Story three is playing the audience like a goddamn like piano man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's this real oh, like man. calculated <laughs> Billy Joel fucking sing along of a movie. That that's a great fucking quote. That's perfect. You nailed it. Thank you. I, I don't know if I can think of a better example than that for for now at least. Yeah, let's let's leave it at Toy Story three. Fuck that movie. Okay, next question. <laughs> um, Steven asks, "Who is your favorite Batman, and what makes Danny Trejo movies better than non Danny Trejo movies?" I think it's Danny Trejo. That's what makes it better, right? <laughs> yeah, by the by the transitive property, I think that's I think, really the yeah. Technically, solve that one. All right, let's go to the Batman one. Who's your favorite Batman? Michael Keaton, by far. How about you, Jenner? I don't know. I I like Christian Bale. Even with like the gravelly whatever? And his dumb face. (laughs) He's got an okay face. His dumb face. You wouldn't kick him out of bed. Yeah, basically. (laughs) He'd probably kick you out of bed. Doesn't he have like a temper? Oh. Isn't he notorious for like yelling at people or? That's Russell Crowe. That was kind of the problem with him, I thought. He never. Like, Michael Keaton could do that, like, super charming James Bondy, Bruce Wayne guy. Mm. And then Christian Bale, when he was trying to be the normal guy, was, like, the creepiest guy in the room. And, like, how could anybody not figure out this giant, jacked, gravelly, groaning monster wasn't Batman? Right. Who else was it going to be? Yeah. It's this big, dumb idiot dressed in black all the time yelling at people. I'm going to go for, if I have to pick a live-action Batman Adam West is my favorite. Oh, right. That's a good pick. I came to appreciate that show and that movie so much more after I watched a little of the original Lone Ranger show and realized how perfect an impression Adam West was doing the entire time of the Lone Ranger. (laughs) Well, see, that's that's the kind of thing that would be totally lost on somebody who hadn't seen that. Yeah. His Batman voice, though, that like really stilted, careful enunciation and those slow sentences with the staring straight out of the Lone Ranger. Exactly, and it was that that show doesn't get enough credit. It gets seen as this campy thing. That show was brilliant. The set work was brilliant too. When they ran out of money, so they would just paint black sets and put green lime green flats for the doors and stuff. It really like it looks like nothing else. Yeah. It looks that one in the original Star Trek look like experimental theater to me. Mm. If you haven't seen that show and you're watching this, go to YouTube and find. Um, I think it's called Surfs Up, Jokers <laughs> Under, where the Joker challenges Batman to a surfing competition. That's the one to see, because you'll see, like... Yeah, you sent me that a while back, and it's incredible. It's yeah, a great foray into that. Just the use of space is so <laughs> funny. These completely empty, they look like play sets, are just mm. so funny. All right, so next question, last question. Uh, this is another one from Steven. I was going to do one of the other ones, but they're too big a question. We'll save them for another time. But here's another one from Steven. Uh, Joe versus the Volcano, best movie or bestest best movie? I've never heard of it. You ever seen Joe versus the Volcano? Nope. You? I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Are you fucking kidding me? How did I get into this room? Why am I with you people? Who's- All those 80s Tom Hanks I've never really seen. The only one I've seen is Big and I don't like it. You know, like Big? I got into a screaming match with this old lady on the street once. About was, Big? Yeah. Because I was talking to a friend of mine. And um, somehow Tom Hanks came up. I was like, I just can't stand that movie big. 
And this woman just like whirled around. I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> this is a big thing. I was like, I just didn't like big. I didn't think it was that good. Um, see, this is why we're fucking smug film, okay? Because <laughs> yeah. John D'Amico doesn't like big. People just yell at me about it all the time. You're doing it right now. Everybody yells at me about not liking big. Big is wonderful. What a delightful film. Persecuted. And Joe vs. the Volcano is great, too. The first act of that movie really is the movie for me. Just the way that it sets up. You would love the way it starts. You would adore the way it starts. And you is would like it too, kid? Jenna, damn is, it. Is he a little kid who wishes he turns into a volcano? No, he's a kid. <laughs> then he turns into a volcano? Well, Life is like a volcano? He's a, well, he learns things along the way, and he's a grown man, and he works at a shitty job, and he finds out that he's going to die, so he goes on this thing where he's going to jump into a volcano. It's a good movie, damn it. It's funny. It's dark. Come on. You, how did I get into this room? <laughs> I'll tell you right now, I'm probably never going to watch it. Oh man, Jenna, I feel like will the you window watch closed it? with me. Is it on Netflix? <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. Just watch it. Go to the All library, right. rent it. All right. It's a good movie, damn it. We let you down. So what's your answer? Best movie or best best Oh uh, no, it's not that good. <laughs> it's uh it's pretty good. Like I said, the first first uh, chunk of it's good. And then it kind of loses me and then it never really grabs me. There's okay, this- rank it on a scale with big Forrest Gump and Apollo 13. Okay, Big is number one, because fuck you. It's better than those other two. <laughs> Dumb idiot. Okay. Big is number one. Number two, Forrest Gump, because I love the dark, twisted vibe of it, you know, that it doesn't get enough credit for, that as the story goes, Tarantino pointed out to Zemeckis, and he was like, finally somebody who gets that it's a dark comedy. And I don't care about Apollo 13 whatsoever. So number three would be Joe vs. Volcano. Really, that was my that was my landmine on the list because Apollo thirteen is the only one of those movies I like. <laughs> I love Apollo thirteen. I can't get into that fucking movie. I really like space though. Well, yeah, thing. I love Forrest Gump. I like space too, but I don't like Apollo thirteen. Apollo thirteen is great. It's like just like the coolest too. Like the way they shot it, they shot it in the um, Vomit Comet, which is the. Right, the the plane that the astronauts train in zero gravity in, it shoots way up and then it just nosedives into the like as close as it can to the ground and pulls back up. So they actually had like ninety seconds or whatever of zero gravity at a time. Mm. So it's like the only movie that's been shot in zero gravity. Yeah, and that's a wonderful aspect of it. But plus, just fucking Paxton. old people talking on. You know what? No wait, fuck it. Paxton there's Ed a, Harris. There's a great part of that movie that's my favorite part, which is the only part I like of the movie. Which is this one scene. It's a very short scene where like the scientist has like all this stuff laid out on the table, and like all these weird machine parts and everything. And out of context, it's one of the greatest scenes ever on film. And even in context, I'm sure it's good too. But he's it's a scientist comes in. He's like, all right. We got to figure out a way to get this to fit into the the hole for this uses nothing but that. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a square yeah. peg in a round <laughs> hole. Yeah, they had to fix the oxygen scrub yeah, or whatever. But it's just the greatest like summary of what they're trying to figure out at this point. <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. That's Something. a brilliant scene. <laughs> this fit the hole for this use nothing but that. And then he says, like, all right, go. That's a great part of the movie. So I guess I don't entirely hate that movie because I like that part a lot. But anyway, I guess this section is why we're called Smug Film. I think we answered <laughs> John D'Amico's question at the beginning of that. We'd do better with ice cream flavors. 
We do do be- fucking nailed that one. Go back to the first episode. Just I, watch that. We nailed those ice cream descriptions. That was incredible. But Send was, more ice cream questions. So, <laughs> give us more directors to associate with ice cream. Because we, we nailed that one. All right, guys. That's the episode. I am Cody Clark. That's John D'Amico. Yep. Uh, bye. <laughs> and that's Jenna. Goodbye. Ipcar. Hi. Bye. Hi. Bye. See y'all. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.